Good morning. Uh, I want you to picture something with me, uh, a guy about my size, well, a little thinner, me in the past, uh, on a little 125cc motor scooter uh, going to the post office in Thailand. I would do that on a regular basis, but when it became, it was like December or so, mid-December, getting close to Christmas, I would go a lot more often because I had some expectation that something was going to arrive, and, and then that day would come, and I would go, and there would be a box or maybe even two of uh, Christmas gifts from my church, uh, Bible Fellowship of Riverside and then Bridges Christian Fellowship would send us these gifts, and I would bungee cord them onto my motor scooter and take them back home, and uh, I think the verse we began with last week in Philippians chapter 4 describes our feelings, my wife and I and our kids even. Uh, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for us. Uh, and so I just want to, from Philippians and from my heart, encourage us. Uh, it's changed a little bit in the world of missions. There's no longer this uh, slow boat to China, so to speak, where you can put these big boxes and it's not that expensive. You, we, we have to, uh, so now we give our gift missionaries cash and we give them gift cards. And so I just want to encourage you, and, and we'll have some application even for this as we continue as our look in Philippians today, but I'd encourage you to think about re- being able to revive, uh, bring joy to the hearts of our missionaries as you walk past that table. We're doing two things really this year. We're, if you want to just give cash, uh, and then the missions team will go and buy gift cards for our missionaries, or if you want to go and sign up and get uh, the gift card yourself, either way. But I would just encourage you to do that. All right? Are you there? You, you guys need to be there. So you might even want to move up today. This is going to be something special, a little bit crazy. Huh? See, I love that attitude. I don't know if you, have you looked in your bulletin at your notes? They're a little different, a little crazy. Uh, this is our final week in the book of Philippians. Next week we, we start our Advent and we're going to begin with hope. So hope is great and so come next week and uh, let's experience hope together. Hope in Christ's coming. Yes, yes. But over the past 11 weeks we've walked through this amazing letter of Philippians. Uh, a letter written from prison by the Apostle Paul. He's in, under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier uh, to the church in Philippi, which he founded some 10 years before. Now, if you've been with us for most of this series, and especially if you've taken part in our small groups, then I hope you've got a, a, a somewhat of a good grasp of what's contained in this book. But maybe it's sort of still uh, out there. It's sort of, you know, I got this and this. So today we want to sort of walk through it and pull it together, get an overall picture of what Paul was trying to communicate So what we're going to do this morning is review and reflect. Reviewing without reflection wouldn't do us much good. We're going to have some time of reflection. My goal is to help us put what we've learned into some kind of perspective, to help us remember, reflect, and then uh, continue to apply the many lessons that we found in this book of Philippians. And the way we're going to do that is different. This week, I, I really didn't even prepare a sermon. I know, you know, you cut my pay, whatever, you know, give me a little pay cut. I, I, but I did prepare a series of questions 
These questions are designed to help us do this review and reflection. I don't want us to walk away from Philippians with just another uh, sort of notch on our belt. Okay, we got another book of the Bible down. We did that in church. I read through it. Great. Another book that we sort of just forget about. But instead, I want us to walk away with a better understanding of this book and how it applies to our lives. And if you haven't been with us for the past 11 weeks, that's okay. Today, you're going to get it all in maybe 40 minutes if I can do it. Uh, So, are you ready? This is going to involve a little more interaction. Don't worry. I'm going to ask some questions, but I'm not going to call on anybody except for maybe Brian back there since he's sitting in... No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm not going to embarrass anybody except for Gary because he just... It's fun to do that. Uh, So we better get started. Anyway, uh, I already pointed out Philippians was written by Paul from prison. And if you remember back to week one, how many were here in week one of Philippians? Okay, there's five of you. Great. I I gave you what were the reasons, the extremes, Uh, the reasons Paul wrote this letter, and I want to focus on one. Uh, It's the external, it's the immediate, it's the right reason Paul's writing the letter. And it has to do with our missions table back there. It has to do with uh, Philippians 4.10, that they've revived his concern for him. And so, first question, why did Paul write the letter to the Philippians? Now, in your notes, you've got the questions, the verses. I'm putting verses overhead, and I'm going to, I'll probably read some of it. Can you guys see... Can you see that? And can you see what I'm, what I'm trying to do is highlight, we can't read the whole book, we can't go through every verse, but I'm trying to highlight the parts where these answers sort of are coming from. So I may read some of the verses, but I want you to look up there uh, and just sort of shout out, why did Paul write this letter? Say that again. That was so good, Ashley. Okay, let me just point out, Ashley's answer and why it was great and why it was okay. Anyway, uh, so we're going to answer. So Paul wrote this letter certainly to equip world changers. Maybe everything he wrote, everything Jesus said was to equip world changers. But the answers we're looking for are the ones that are in these verses immediately. Because Jesus is always the right answer. We can always say Jesus. But, But we're sort of... So with that in mind... A letter of thanksgiving, of giving thanks. Thanksgiving, this is Thanksgiving Sunday, so we're getting a little bit of that in there. The first Sunday, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Because of the partnership of the gospel, perfect answer. He's thanking them, he's thanking God, and he's thanking them for their partnership in the gospel. In their partnership that would equip world changers. Amen, Ashley. All right, great. So that's it. Now number two, we're flying through, we've got one down. What does partnership in the gospel mean? The defense and confirmation of the gospel and? All right. Now, we don't have to just read. We can, you're becoming quite the teaching tool, actually. We can do this in our own words as well. But, but Paul says, because of your partnership in the gospel, it is right for me to feel this way about you. He's talking about his feelings, his great depth depth of feelings with them both, he, they, because they concern, have concerned for him and partnered with him in his imprisonment, in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. And then, just to add in, in Philippians 4.13, he says, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. So, partnership in the gospel is 
giving us being part of his ministry in the gospel. Now, now we, we, I'm not going to ask this question. I'm just going to answer it. But the gospel, so what the, the partnership in the gospel means they are joining with him in seeing that the gospel go. Remember, Paul's a missionary going from place to place. And as he goes, he carries with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message of salvation. The message that will save your soul and transform your life. And he's taking this, and this group of people is giving him financially. They're praying for him. They're doing it themselves as well in Philippi. So they're partnering with him in seeing the gospel go forth. Question three. How does Paul feel about the Philippians' partnership in the gospel? Verses 1 Three and four, he says, how does he, so how does he feel about him? He re, he's rejoicing, yes. Anything else? He has a lot of love for them. He cares about them. He's thanking God for them. He's rejoicing in them. He's praying for them. He has affection for them. All right? So we've seen, just in the beginning here, why Paul is writing this letter. And I hope you're getting a sense of the importance Paul places on the gospel going forth. And there's more. We know that Paul's in prison for proclaiming the gospel. That's why he's in prison, probably in Rome. There's other theories, but probably in Rome. And so the fourth question is, what was the result of Paul's imprisonment? The gospel was advanced. Any, any, anybody remember how the gospel was advancing? So he, 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 he would be connected to one Roman soldier, uh, and he would share the gospel. Whoever Paul's around, they're going to get the gospel. What, what else? Anybody else remember? There's some verses that follow. I don't have them up there if you have them in your Bible. Yes. Yes. It gave boldness to other believers. And he even says something that's kind of weird. He says, because of this, because if you read down, I think it's in verse... Uh, 15, 16, because of this, some people are preaching the gospel because they care for me and the gospel and others out of envy, but I don't care. The gospel's going out. So he's excited about that. Uh, mm, Paul goes on to say that his imprisonment is caught. Okay, we said that, we said that. Uh, But verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul's imprisonment resulted in the proclamation of the gospel. And the proclamation of the gospel brought Paul great joy. Paul's clearly passionate about seeing the gospel proclaimed. And that brings us to our our first set of reflection questions. We're not going to answer these during our time. If you have some thoughts, we can talk about that. But these are for you to take with you. There's a little homework even for you to reflect on these. We have, have, I can't remember, three or four set of reflection questions. And so the reflect, based on what we've seen so far, the reflection for us is how passionate, we've seen Paul's passion, how passionate are you about seeing the gospel go forth? Use Paul as an example. Do you even approach that? Are you even thinking about it? Are you totally not interested in it? Or are you trying to, to be like Paul was? Where is that passion seen in your life? Is there a place where you can point to where your, your passion for the gospel is seen? And, and what can you do to become more passionate about partnering in the gospel? What can you do to become more? Because that's the key in, in some ways. You know, you may feel like, you know, I'm not really doing much right now, but well, what can you do more? And I'm going to give you a hint. I'm going to give you a hint. 
to what you can do to answer question three. And we're going to see what you can do mainly when we come to chapter three. Chapter three is going to talk about knowing Christ. And I think the more we know Christ, the more we will want to make Christ known. The more we know Christ, the more we will want to make Christ known. And so chapter 3 is like crucial if you want to follow Paul's example of making, uh, getting the gospel out, we need to live in chapter 3 for a little bit. So we'll get there. So Paul's made his passion for the gospel clear. He's in prison for proclaiming the gospel. He's waiting to find out whether he's going to be released from prison or he's going to be put to death. And there's part of, of him that wants to live and part of them that wants to die. Part of him wants to go be with the Lord. In verse 20, 21, he says, But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether I, by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. So Paul's torn between life and death, between going to be with Christ and remaining here. But he chooses to remain. So our next question is, why did Paul choose life over death? Say that again. Because of his concern for the believers. Because of his concern for the Philippians and others. He chooses to remain because, of, he cares, because it's best for him. Not that he's going to commit suicide or anything. Let's not go there. But it's best for him to go be with Jesus. But he cares more about others than himself. Remember that our acrostic joy, Jesus is first, then others, then yourself. He cares about the progress and the joy of their faith. Paul wants the Philippian believers to grow in their faith. And he believes his presence among them is going to facilitate that. And in verse 27, he then shifts a little bit and he makes this challenge. He challenges them. He says, whether I'm able to be with you or not, because he's not sure if he's going to live or die. He's not sure if he's going to be released from prison or not. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, we spent a lot of time looking at this sort of idea, living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So question seven has several parts. First of all, what does it mean to, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ according to Philippians 1.27, the end of it? What, is that, what does it mean? According to 127, that's up there. It, it's, it's a united front, standing firm. What else? Ha, ha, putting faith, as, being side by side for the faith, striving, striving side by side for faith in the gospel. So it's a, it's a, a united fighting together for the gospel. Does that make sense? Yeah. They, as a, they as a church care about the gospel going forth uh, with Paul sending him out and in their own community, I believe. It's a united front and they want to see the gospel go forth. So they're fighting for that. And then according to Philippians 1, 29 and 30, what, what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? There's some suffering involved, isn't it? Isn't there? There's some suffering. It's not all nice and easy. And, and there's some engaging in conflict, Right? There's some, con- remember we talked about that when we were in this passage, that it's, you know, if you want to engage your world with the gospel, there are enemies, there are strife, there's going to be conflict, it's difficult, people don't want to hear it. Some do, some don't, and you're going to find uh, that, both, yes. Okay. Are we going okay? Yes. All right, we're going, 
moving a little fast? You might be right. Uh, according to Philippians 2, this is, uh, have we done, has, have any of you guys done, remember the secret church with uh, David Platt when he got into high gear? This is what we're doing here. Uh, really fast. So according to Philippians 2, 2 through 4, what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? So, so there's some oneness again. He's repeating this same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. And then humility. 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 Counting others more significant than yourself. Now, how can this... Okay, let me ask this. This isn't a question up there, but just to ask you guys. How can... Why does the church need to be unified and humble to partner in the gospel, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? That's the next question. Hold on there, Gloria. Jumping ahead. But what, what, just unity, unity and, I mean, what's going to, I mean, just think about it. We're, we're all a bunch of ununified, not humble people. How well are we going to do in seeing the gospel go forth? It shows we have the spirit that unifies us. Okay. So there's some, so it's a witness to the world. Our unity and our humility together is a witness to the gospel's transformation of, of our lives. And, practically speaking, it helps us work together, right? If we have a plan, we're going we're gonna to reach the campus at UCR, right? Well, we have to be unified about that, and we have to be humble. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in the background doing this. I'm going to do... So, so there's some unity and humility needed to advance the gospel, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So, next question, Gloria. I'll just shoot it right at you. How does Christ exemplify living in a manner worthy of the gospel? I'm just looking. You don't have to. I'm sorry. I, I said I wouldn't go. <laughs> Gary, go, Gary. Anyone? He was a servant. He served. What else? A lot of stuff packed in there. Humble. There was humility. There was service. Say that again. It was obedience, obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus went all the way, humbled himself, didn't count. He set aside his rights. I mean, we have lots of rights, but if we want to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we have to set aside those rights. We have to set aside, I mean, this goes back to the humility, right? Uh, We have to set aside our rights, be humble, put others before ourselves. All right. Then in verses 9 through 11, Paul writes uh, that Christ will be exalted because of his humble obedience. I'm just going to read that because it's really awesome. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, I think we sang about this this morning, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And based on uh, the humble example provided by Christ and then his exaltation by God, Paul continues to call the Philippians to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says in verse 12, work out your salvation. This, this salvation that Christ provided by humbling himself. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what does it mean to work out your salvation? Allow God, to work in you. Allow God that's great. 
Because, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So to work out your salvation, you have to allow God to work in you. So what might that look like, working out your salvation? Example. Okay? The spiritual disciplines, knowing Christ, working out your salvation in that way. What else? Giving up your rights, humbling yourself, doing some of the things Paul's already talked about. Other things. Okay, great. Obedience. Right, obeying what you study and read. Yeah, that's good. Dan? Sharing in small groups. All right. And in bigger groups. Amen. I would say, uh, just sort of as I read through it and, and we talked about this, it's not, and I think you guys got this, uh, it's not working to earn your salvation it's working as God calls you, the good works God's prepared you because he's given you salvation, right? Working out, uh, uh, you're becoming that servant for the Lord, humble before the Lord uh, because of his salvation, because of the salvation he's provided. All right? Now in verses 17 to 30, I, I am skipping some stuff, just so you know. Paul gives the Philippians three examples of people who are living in a manner of the worthy of the gospel. You guys remember who those three people were? Epaphroditus, you took the hard one, good. Timothy and Paul himself. So he gives us these three examples, and for time's sake we're not going to look at that, but they, they just serve, if, if, as you're reading through, to reinforce what he's already talked about, to reinforce what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So, we've seen what it means to live in a manner where the, anyone care to like summarize what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Anybody, you don't have, I, I have a summary, but if, if you guys want to, as we've talked about it. Yes, Tom. Living in humility, unity with one another for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. Good, good, thanks. So, we got that. So now let's reflect. Let's reflect on living in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And again, this is for you to to reflect on later. What can I do to unite with other believers to see the gospel go forth? What can I do? What's my part in seeing the gospel? Right, right. What can we do as bridges to unite to see the gospel go forth into our community? to see the gospel go forth in, into the world? And then second, where do I need to humble myself so that the gospel will go forth? Where can I put my reputation out there uh, on the line? Identify myself as a believer, obey God, share the gospel. That can be humbling in our world sometimes. All right? So those are things for you to, to reflect on. Now, chapters 1 and 2, in chapters 1 and 2, uh, the focus has been on the gospel, really, the joy of the gospel, the, the proclaiming of the gospel, partnering with the gospel, the advancement of the gospel. Really, we summarize this as making Christ known. But as we come to chapter 3, the focus changes. It changes from making uh, him known to knowing him. In chapter 3, Paul begins by calling the Philippians again to rejoice in the Lord, and then he warns them about something. 
something that can divert us from our goal of, of knowing Christ, of focusing on Christ, of realizing it's Christ that brought us salvation. So verse 11, uh, so the question 11, sorry, is, what does Paul uh, warn the Philippians about? The dogs. He calls them dogs. And, evil. and who were these guys? That we, call, we call them Judaizers. And what was, what, were, what was it about them that Paul had trouble with? Well, that was part of it, yes. Yeah. To, to follow Christ, you had to obey the laws and customs, specifically circumcision, of the Old Testament. And Paul does not, you, you don't have to do that, he says. I mean, if you, we talked about this. If you want a whole treatise on this, the book of Galatians is all, is all about that. But he mentions it here as well. Uh, uh, so what's he warning them against? He's warning them against these Judaizers, but then... What are these Judaizers actually doing? They're, it's right there at the end of the verse. They're putting confidence in the flesh. So he's warning the Philippians, don't put confidence in your flesh. Put no confidence in your flesh. Then in verses 4 through 6, Paul uses himself, if you remember, as an example of someone who could, if anybody could, put confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, he goes on, tribe of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, blameless in keeping the law. If anyone could put confidence in their flesh, in who they were and what what they had done, it was Paul. But he doesn't. He doesn't. So he says, if anybody could, I could. These Judaizers, they don't even compare to me in their ability to put confidence in the flesh. But I'm not putting my confidence in the flesh. So how does Paul feel about, verse, our 12th question, how does Paul feel about his accomplishments? That's part A. And what does he really want? What is he really looking for? And we need to just read this, okay? It's so, I, I, th- I thought about highlighting stuff, but I go, man, it's the, whole, it's the whole thing. So, as I read this, just think about what, how does Paul feel about his accomplishments and what is he really shooting for? But whatever gain I had, he's talking about back to those things of his flesh, the Hebrew of Hebrews, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So, how does Paul feel about his accomplishments? Rubbish, trash, loss. Nothing, no, no, no positive benefit from his own accomplishment. And what is he really after? Knowing Christ. Gaining Christ. Knowing Christ in the power of his resurrection. Sharing in his sufferings. To know, and I believe to become more like Christ. That's what Paul's after. Paul then makes it clear that he does not know Christ complete perfectly. He says, not that I've already attained uh, this or am already perfect. He says, I'm not there yet. Paul isn't perfect. He doesn't know Christ fully yet. But he, does, he doesn't give up. Question 13. What is Paul's number one priority? 
to know Christ more. Press on to make Him His own, he, he says. One thing I do. Not two things, not three things, but one thing I do. I'm straining, forgetting what's behind, straining towards what's ahead. I, I press on to this goal of knowing Christ. So let's reflect on knowing Christ. What is the number one priority in your life? You need to ask yourself this, this reflection, uh, probably daily, morningly, as you get up, is, is knowing Christ, as I think about my day ahead of me, am I thinking about knowing Christ? Now I realize we have jobs and we have to do what we have to do, but in the midst of that is my goal to know more of Christ, to have Christ become, be, be more part of my life, or is it something else? What are you doing to press on in your personal relationship with Christ? What are the things, I mean, that... The, that we talked about these, uh, the spiritual disciplines, the prayer, the Bible study, the spending time in fellowship, the, the actually serving, the, 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 the coming to church, the joining in small group. I mean, what are the things that you're doing to open yourself up to know more of Christ? Spending time with Him. So, the, again, reflections on those. Paul then, in verses 16 through 19, he exhorts the Philippians to follow his example. His example of pursuing Christ. Not not the example of those who are enemies of the cross, he says. They pursue the things of the world. But our citizenship, he says, in in verse 20 of chapter 3, is in heaven. So what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? That's a big thing in there in Philippians chapter 20. We talk about it a lot. What does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Okay, so, so you're thinking, because uh, heaven, you can't see it, right? It's, it's a faith thing, so you're walking by faith. You're trusting in what will come. You have uh, a preview of next week. You have hope in what Christ will give you in heaven. What else? Okay, right, our true home is in heaven. We're not, we don't fit. So uh, being a citizen of one place in some ways means a rejection of citizenship in another place, Right? You know, some people I think in countries can have dual citizenship, but that's not allowed uh, in, the, in, in the gospel. We're citizens of heaven, and that means our citizenship in earth is becoming less and less. Our loyalty is the kingdom of God. That's good. Yeah. Someday we're going home. That's our home. That's where we're, we talked about this, storing up our treasures too, right? In heaven. Okay. There's, there's more on that, but we'll stop there. Then we come to the final chapter of Philippians. We're making it through. Paul begins to, uh, he, by addressing this disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche, he calls them to agree and to, he asks the true companion to help them. Then beginning in verses 4 to 9, from 4 to 9, Paul gives the Philippians a, a set of exhortations, of commands, I think really related to probably uh, some problems that might be going on within the church, exemplified by the one he mentions between Euodia and Syntyche. So what does Paul command the Philippians to do in, so we're going to break this up into two parts, in verses 4 through 6. So rejoice in the Lord always, that's the first thing. And so we, you know, this is like, uh, I want to go into sermonizing about what that means, but, but we have to, if, if you're not sure, then I then go back and listen to the message on that. You know, we, we, that's what we did. But it means rejoice in the Lord always. It's not dependent on your circumstances. It's depending on who the Lord is in your life. What else? 
Okay? Continue to rejoice. And not just rejoice always. He's emphasizing it. What else? Okay, so let your reasonableness be. What does that mean? You guys remember? There's some sensibility. There's some... If maybe, maybe if you have a different version. Remember, that's the word that was translated in all these different ways in different versions of the Bible. Translated reasonableness and what else? Say that again, Chuck. Forbearance, gentleness, gentle spirit. It's this, it's this idea that, that you're setting aside. It's really this idea of, of you're gentle and care about other people. You're setting aside your rights for others. And you're gentle and considerate and reasonable with, with them. Okay. What else? Don't be anxious for anything. That's a hard one. That is very hard. But, yeah. Amen, sister. <laughs> but, that, that's the, but, and, but he doesn't just say, hey, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Just knock it off. He gives you an alternative. Instead of being anxious, you should pray. Take it to the Lord. Take your anxieties to the Lord in prayer and praise and supplication, making your requests known to him. Okay, so those are the exhortations. Uh, then in verses four through nine, eight through nine, he gives some more. Finally, brothers, he says, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So what's he, what's he saying to him there? What's he telling him to do? Focus on the important things, the righteous things, the good things. The true things, not the lies from the enemy, but the truths from God's Word. All right. And, and if you remember, what did, I, what did I say that all, or who did I say lived up to all of those things? The, Jesus. So, so to summarize, I said, think about Jesus, because he's all those all those things. I think Paul's saying you can think about all kinds of other things that way, but if, if you just want to focus on Jesus, you're not going to go wrong. And then he says uh, in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard from me, practice these things. So he's saying, uh, again, I'm your example, what I've taught you, and for us, what I've taught you in the Word of God, do those things. All right? Seventeen? So, what, so he gives these exhortations, these commands, these exhortations, and then he makes a promise. What does, he, what does he promise those who follow those commands? Peace of God and God of peace. You're going to have the peace of God because you're going to have God's peace in you. You're going to have God in you. And that peace surpasses all understanding. It's, it's amazing. And, and this is the first. We're going to talk, uh, there's a couple more promises we're going to hit on. Uh, but this is, again, this, is, this promise isn't for everybody. You get this promise if you're obeying those exhortations, if you're rejoicing in the Lord, if you're being reasonable, if you're not being anxious, if you're praying. I mean, not, again, it's not perfect. You know, Paul said back in chapter 3, I'm not perfect, I'm not doing all these things right, but it's, that's what you're seeking after. Then this peace is going to be granted to you, okay? All right. Final section of the letter, Paul wants to again thank the Philippians for his concern for them. We read that verse, verse 10. He rejoices that they're concerned for him. He's happy that they've given him a gift, but he wants to make something else clear to them. What does Paul want the Philippians to understand in the midst of their giving? What does he want them to understand about him, about Paul? That he's content. 
that it's not dependent. He's not depending on their giving for his contentment. That should be true for our missionaries as well as we think about they shouldn't be waiting. I'm so ticked off. Bridges hasn't given me any. Oh, no, I'm content. That's not how it is. It's, it's really, and I think it's true if you're serving the Lord, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, uh, you're just going to re- rejoice in the fact that they've given to you. And now he's going to teach us something in verses 14 to 16. He thanks him for the gift. 17 and 18. What does Paul teach us about giving? Wait, I skipped something. Not, question 19. All right. Hang in there. So in the context of uh, needs, in the context of, of difficulties, of being in prison, difficult circumstances, and then in the context of contentment, Paul writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what does Paul mean by, I can do all things through him who strengthens me? Okay. Okay, so he could do the things that God gave him strength for. He could do them because he was strengthened by the Lord. What, so what, what are those things? Think about Paul. What are the things he was doing? Yeah. So, so just so, uh, again, summarize this, what they've said and what, what we talked about a couple weeks ago. He's not talking about this is your super Christian verse. You can, you can fly because Jesus gives you strength to. It's not your personal accomplishments. He's saying, I can endure through all circumstances because of the strength Christ gives me. I can press on because Christ gives me strength in this difficult life. Paul then, in verses 14 and 16, thanks them again for their gift. He rejoices in their willingness to partner with him in the gospel. But he also wants them to understand something about sacrificial giving. So in verses 17 and 18, what does Paul teach us about giving? Right? It's, it's, more, it's, not about, it's not about him as the receiver. It's about them as the giver and what God is going to bless them with because they're willing to give sacrificially. He's not seeking a gift. He's seeking fruit for them. He wants them to give because it's good to give. It's good for your soul, and it's good for your uh, eternal uh, storing up treasures in heaven. And what else, what else does he say about this gift? What is it to God? It's a, it's a sacrifice to God. It's a sacrifice to God. We don't sacrifice uh, uh, animals anymore. We've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, but we still make sacrifices to the Lord, and the sacrifice is ourself, and part of that sacrifice is our giving we make an offering to the Lord out of the things that he's given us. So that takes us to verse 19. So you guys willing to hang in here with me a little bit? Take my time. Wow. All right, here we go. So verse 19 is a promise. And we didn't get to verse 19 last week, if you remember, if you were here. Uh, Paul's just talked about sacrificial giving. And then he writes... In verse 19, so this is, I did prepare a little sermon on verse 19, just so you know. Okay. So, but there is a question too. He's, he writes, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So the question is, who is Paul making the promise to and what is he promising in Philippians 4.19? So, who's he making the promise to? Those who are giving sacrificially. The believers in Philippi who sent this gift to him. And what is he promising them? Won't lack for anything, okay? Yeah, yeah. 
That's part of it. It's in the, the riches of the glory of, I mean, it's just saying all this is going to come to you because of, of Christ. So let me, let me just take a shot at this. Go ahead and answer this in a little more detail we did, because we haven't covered it. Again, we, we can't take this promise out of context. It's, made, it's not made to all people. It's not even made to all believers. It's made to those who are sacrificially giving. Those who are willing to let go of their earthly possessions to meet the needs of others. Those who give sacrificially to see the work of the Lord go forward. To those, Paul says, that God would supply all of their needs. The Philippians had sacrificially given of their earthly possessions to support God's servant, Paul, in his ministry. In return, God would supply their needs. Now, does that mean that they would never go hungry or thirsty? That they would always be secure physically? That they would always have a place to live, a place to lay their head, a home? What does Paul mean by every need? This is really important. Many people would say that it does mean those things, that it means that every believer will never lack for earthly, physical necessities of life. That is, that's great. And I think, I think uh, back in that fruit credited to your account, I think that is probably talking about the spiritual, but I do think this is talking about your physical earthly needs. They're giving physical earthly things, and they're going to in return receive physical earthly things. But throughout church history, there have been many godly people who've suffered. They've suffered hunger and thirst and homelessness. Paul himself would be an example of this, right? Uh, Persecuted, imprisoned, beaten, left for dead, running for his life. Certainly from one perspective, Paul's physical needs were not all being met. Most of us would consider a place to live even an important need. But Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So does it mean that? And then uh, Paul wrote, where's it at? It's in Romans. I didn't, I think it's up there on the board. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword? Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Really, Paul writes that with the assumption that we're going to face those things. We're going to face hunger and famine and nakedness, and, and, but, but Christ is, but that will not separate us from the love of Christ. So, so what's Paul promising? What does he mean by every need? Well, I think there are at least two things that he's promising. First, remember the promise is to givers. So I think Paul's saying that if you, are, if you give sacrificially, if you give generously, and that causes you to be in physical need, if you have uh, uh, $10 left for a meal and you choose to give it to this person, God's going to make up for that. God's going to meet your needs. When you give sacrificially, God's not going to let you go hungry or thirsty because you're giving to those in need. You can't, I think the saying here applies doesn't always apply, but I think it applies here. You can't outgive God in that respect. But it doesn't mean that if you're a believer and you live in a country stricken by famine, you won't suffer along with the others in your country. When you give your tithes and offerings, your special gifts to the missionaries, when you help those in need, when you give the Lord, to the Lord's work, God will, leave, will, will not leave you in need. I believe that's what Paul's saying. And the second thing I think it means is that God will supply your every need 
and your every need is defined by God himself. God will give you what God knows you need. And that might be food, and it might be drink, it might be a home, or a spouse, or a child, or a hundred other things. But it also might be the strength, and the power, and the love that he provides to live without, to live with less, to live without those things that you think you need. So God will meet your every need in the way that God thinks is best for you. And Paul adds, He will do it all according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Your needs will be met based on the riches and glory of Christ Jesus. What Paul's saying is that you're every, uh, you don't need to worry. If you're giving, if you're one who sacrifices for others, the Lord is going to take care of you. Then God, who's already given you Jesus Christ, the God who's already given you Jesus Christ, will now, through the riches of Christ, supply you with every need. Needs that I see in your life. Not I, God, sees in your life. So our final reflection questions are, are about sacrificial giving, and we're going to com- combine that with contentment, because I think they go together. If you, if you want the promise of verse 19, if you want God to supply your every need according to the riches of Christ Jesus then you need to reflect on contentment and giving. What can you do to learn to be content? What can you do to learn contentment? Where can you make sacrifices in your life to give more to God's work? And finally, how can giving more lead to greater contentment? Maybe a paradox even there. But it's true, isn't it? If you've experienced it, how, how releasing these things of this world turn your eyes. The, the things, when you look upon Jesus, the things of this world grow strangely unimportant, strangely dim, and, and you're able to give them away. All right. Thanks for hanging in there. We're just about finished. In verses 21 to 23, Paul concludes the letter with some personal notes to the Philippian believers. But I want to conclude our review and our study of Philippians with verse 20. He, he concludes the book, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Everything that Paul has written in this letter, everything he's written about joy, everything he's written about the gospel, everything he's written about living in a manner worthy of the gospel, everything he's written about knowing Christ pressing on in your relationship with Christ, everything he's written about sacrificial giving and and contentment, everything he's written is for us to hear, to reflect on, and to live out to the glory of God our Father. So if you're going to take these things, and and I'm not, you know, take this list of questions, these reflections, I would encourage you over the next couple of weeks to read through this, this book again, that it's not just a notch on your belt, that it's something that, that, that indwells you, the Word of God found in Philippians. It's my prayer that our, our study in this book will not just be this, this uh, forgotten, but it will, uh, you'll allow God, through your continual returning to it, use it, you can use these reflection questions, you can just go to your Bible Allowing God to to use that in your lives, to transform our lives to what we've learned over the past 12 weeks. That's my prayer, that that God's Word would empower us in this. So so take some time this week, reflect on those those questions, and just see how God continues to work uh, through this uh, 12-week study we've had. Let me pray. Lord God, thanks for this time together. 
Thanks for your word, just how impactful it is in our lives. Lord, I pray you would, uh, you would help us this week even to reflect on these many lessons found in the book of Philippians, or lessons on sharing the gospel, lessons on living uh, for the gospel, lessons on knowing Christ, lessons on contentment and giving. Lord, help us to reflect on those things in others. We would allow you to enter in. We would, we would press into you, press on uh, in our relationship with you that you might transform us into, into the image of Jesus Christ. For his uh, name and for his sake we pray. Amen.